passage this morning is Deuteronomy chapter 8. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do it, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out and in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built houses and have lived in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions, and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do good, to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me all this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly swear to you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Well, my name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here. Last week we saw that God thinks very highly of his people. He calls them beloved, and we 
know that as his people before him today, with his word open in front of us, that his beloved possession, his people, don't need a production and to be entertained by a talent show. They need his word and to be equipped for good works that he's prepared them to walk in. So each week we turn to this word that it might inform and instruct our very lives. And as the beloved people of God gathered around his word this morning, uh, let's take a moment and uh, put this prayer up there. These, this prayer is just from Psalm 119. Let's pray these words from Psalm 119 together as we prepare to hear God's word. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Amen. There's a feature of the brain that ties the the flavor of food to some intense or emotional memories. You probably know this even without knowing it, right? You, You can go and you smell certain foods or taste certain foods and they kind of take you back, right? Maybe if you smell a corn dog, you, you might think of the fair or, or a funnel cake. You know, you might think of, of going on rides and those memories could be good. They, some of them could be bad. It's, you, you mix a ride and a corn dog wrongly and it, it could be a, a bad memory that you're putting together in your brain. So you could thank the feature of your brain that does that tying together. Or it's hard to think of a, of a better smell maybe than just fresh baked bread. And likely for, for you, that, that takes you somewhere, right? Like you think of, I remember when that bread was baking in my grandma's house, or I remember when I, when I had that delicious roll or, or whatever. I'm trying to make that connection for my kids every Easter, like we're having cinnamon rolls, so you get that great smell, so you think that the resurrection is the best thing in the world, and maybe that will do other things to your heart, all right? <laughs> Certain tastes and smells, they they take us back and and they connect memories. Now, perhaps God uses that, that the taste and smell and tying it to memory with manna that he drops down from heaven for the Israelites. He wants them to remember that. He he wants them to have some emotional tie to that. There's an, an intensity in the moment that they're in the wilderness and this manna falls from heaven. Perhaps he uses even the very taste and smell of manna to, to work on their behalf. He certainly wanted them to remember it, whether that's working in their brains or not. And so he doesn't just rely upon their their sense of taste and smell and and going back to this time in the wilderness when he provided for them. He he tells them, you need to remember this because it wasn't just about manna. There's a lesson that God was teaching in the wilderness as manna dropped from heaven. It was a lesson of dependency. And this lesson of dependency on God is a lesson that's to be ongoing for the people of God. It wasn't just a wilderness-only lesson. It was a lesson to be ongoing. So as they depended on God providing in the wilderness, so they're to depend upon God in the promised land and as they walk and live and go about their lives. And and how is he providing then? Since we know the manna didn't continue, how is he providing? Is it just that connection in their brain? No, he says that man doesn't live by bread alone. There is teaching you something about something else, something deeper. That man lives not on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. How is God providing? How does he want them to depend upon him? By his word. And so in chapter 8, as we continue working through the the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, he continues to aim at the people of God, Israel, both to warn them and to encourage them. And almost every chapter has both of those Uh, elements in it. So he wants to warn and encourage as they prepare for the promised land. So he starts with verse 1, the whole commandment that I commanded you today, you shall be careful to do 
that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And Moses calls them again to this covenant loyalty to God. He, he wants them to, to give all of their allegiance to this one true living God. He wants them to be careful to obey. And God wants them to be careful to obey. Why? That they might live. That's always in front of them in the book of Deuteronomy. That you might live. God wants this good life for you. That you might multiply and possess the land. And this covenant loyalty to God is helped by them remembering. Verse 2, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So Israel isn't just to be a people who knows where they're going. They're to be a people who knows where they've come from. They're to remember the, the wilderness years and what took place there. And when we think about the, the wilderness generation and the, and the roaming around the wilderness, we, we think probably likely of a time of rebellion and sin. And certainly it was that, but God was also using it for more. He was using it to press something down in them. He was using it so that they would remember it, look back at it, and, and see something about themselves and about God there. And God explains part of this purpose of the 40 years in the wilderness and here's what, at least partly what it was about in verse 2. It was about humbling them and testing them. Humbling. The heart of humility is from chapter 7, verse 9. It sums it well. The heart of humility is to know that the Lord your God is God. That's the heart of humility, is that the Lord is God and, and no one else. He is the only Lord. That's the heart of humility. No idol is God. No nation is God. No army is God. Even themselves, he wants them to know, not that you are in charge, but the Lord God. He's God. That's the heart of humility, and he wants to teach them that, to know that he is God. And he has made this abundantly clear from the Exodus all the way through their wanderings in the wilderness from Sinai and, and anywhere in between, that the only explanation for any of this stuff, their redemption from Egypt, their sustaining in the wilderness, the words they received without dying at the mountain, all of it are, are explaining, are, are given the only explanation is that the Lord is God. And that Israel, as his people, as the ones, they're just recipients. And so they're in need of him. Humility reveals that need and says, the Lord, he's God, and he meets us in that need. That they are nothing without him has been abundantly clear throughout their story if they look back. And if the Lord is God and they are needy and nothing without him, then here's what they should do. They should submit to him and obey his word. Do what he tells them to do. And so when God tests them in the wilderness, he's testing with that purpose to see whether they would obey him or not. To see if you really have learned the lesson that I'm the Lord, your God. And the wilderness turns out to be an ideal place for this. It doesn't sound like an ideal place, but it's an ideal place because what's in the wilderness? Nothing. There's, there's nothing there but God. They're, they're, all the normal supports that they could have looked to to prop them up in the wilderness are gone. They're, they're stripped away. All the things that they had depended upon in the land of Egypt, and other places, they're, they're gone. There's, there's nothing there. There's no one there to depend upon but God. And so with the nothingness of the land and the wilderness in front of them, here's what's going to reveal what's really in their hearts. God is kind to have 
done this in a place that removed temptation to turn to other things. As there, again, there's nothing there but God. And, and what has God shown them so far? He's shown them his greatness, how he brought them out of Egypt with his mighty power and outstretched arm. He led them powerfully. He mercifully spoke to them and gave them his word. They should know now, after all they've seen, that God is everything, that we are nothing without him, so that when they go into the wilderness to, to see if they're going to they're keep his word or not, the, the conclusion should be, where else would they go? What else would they do but to keep his word? But we know that the wilderness is not characterized by their keeping of the word, that their hearts we're not full of humility that would recognize over and over and over again that we are in need and God is going to meet our need and so we need to submit our lives to God. They are showing in their lives in the wilderness that they didn't keep the word of the Lord, but there's rebellion against God in their hearts, rebellion against his word. And so this lesson of humility had to be repeatedly applied. And the, the classroom for this lesson was the wilderness. And in verse 3, God says, And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. God brought them to this desolate place, this wilderness place, and there's this basic necessity that all humanity face that they still have there. Hunger. And so that he brings them to a desolate place where there's, the food is scarce, if there's any at all, but the hunger is still ongoing. And God met that hunger. And God met that hunger with unprecedented provision. A unique thing to think about is that man is this, this 40-year provision, and that's it. I mean, God brought something for 40 years to provide for them. We read about it in Exodus chapter 16. In verse 14, it said, When the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? It's unprecedented. That, and this is where we get the word manna because it sounds like those words, what is it? Like it they, they don't even know what to think about it. it it's not been heard of before. What, what is this sort of thing? For they didn't know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Bread from heaven, bread from God, that's what it is. It's manna, bread from heaven. And so daily, God met their basic need of hunger with basic bread, but unprecedented bread at the same time, right? Unprecedented provision here. Extraordinary bread, although bread itself is very basic. The, the means God uses to provide for them is, is bread from heaven. And so here they are out in this desolate place, and they have no other option of provision. Nothing else is around them. They have nowhere else to turn, nowhere else to look for God to sustain them. And God drops from heaven bread for them to keep them, giving them from himself bread for their daily needs. And so God uses hunger to humble, to show them their need, and, and he meets that need repeatedly with provision that only he could give. Why does he do this? Continue in verse 3. To make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, maybe there are a few of you in here today that, that would like to live on bread alone, if that were an option. 
And we got a lot of gluten-free options out there now. Most of you might be pro-gluten. And we're really for it. And we think we could try to live on bread alone. And if we can't, we'd like to at least give it a try. When he says that man is not made to live on bread alone, he's not talking about diet. He's not saying whether you can or you can't. God was using physical hunger and, and physical provision to teach a spiritual lesson. A lesson on dependence. Dependence upon God and not just God, but His Word. Imagine just the, the daily routine of going out. Israel would wake up in the wilderness and in their tents, there's no food. There's no refrigerator to store food. There's no place to keep food around them. Like they, they have nothing there. They're not growing a garden outside. To, to, like the, the, the wilderness didn't provide a place for them to grow fresh vegetables and fruit very well. Like they, they have nowhere to turn. And so daily, they wake up, they look around the tent, nothing. Hunger still there. So what do they have to do? They have to go out and they have to collect what God had provided on the ground for them, bread from heaven. For 40 years, for 40 years, they wake up and they realize every day that there is no life apart from me going out and collecting what God had provided. And it wasn't just any bread. This is bread from heaven. Right? And so what, what is happening here is that God was establishing this connection of their need to supply from above, their hunger to his provision from heaven. There was always a need. The hunger was ever-present. God didn't take that away from them in the wilderness. Their hunger was still there, just as there as it was in Egypt or any other place. But there was always provision, and there was always provision from above, from heaven. God was faithful to provide. And God wanted this lesson that they would know every single day as their routine. God wanted that lesson to sink down deep into them. It was to be more than just about collecting manna and eating their fill. It was to establish This lesson of dependence, it's about dependence upon God. It's about trust in Him, that day after day, He's faithful to sustain you and keep you. He's providing for you. It's a lesson that teaches this vital connection between God's people and God's Word, that these are meant to go together, that God's people are meant to rely upon it as the Israelites relied upon this manna. The wilderness manna taught that God's people don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Several years later, Jesus, after he had kind of crossed the waters as well, been baptized, he goes out to the wilderness, this barren place. And he goes out there for 40 days without food. So he knows hunger. And after 40 days without food, he goes to this wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. And do you remember the, the first temptation that Satan gives and puts in front of him? He says, if you're the son of God... Why don't you command these stones to become bread? Again, maybe at the sound even of bread, maybe his mouth starts watering, and maybe he thinks back of how, oh yeah, I remember how Mary used to make this really delicious bread on the Sabbath day, or maybe she wasn't supposed to do it on that day, so I remember how she'd make this delicious bread. (laughs) And so, man, that would, that, maybe that sounds good. And it seems like a legit thing to say, right? Turn these stones into bread. I mean, after all, God made your body to be sustained, to live on food. So you're not outside of God's design by just taking and eating the bread, right? Like just make it happen. But the temptation wasn't a temptation and a question of food. It wasn't even a question of power. That's how it sounds on the surface, right? Well, if you're the son of God, 
just turn these stones into bread. Surely you can do that. It wasn't a question of power. It's a question of dependence. Who are you going to rely on, Jesus? Who is Jesus going to depend upon to provide? Take matters into your own hands. You're the Son of God. Tell these stones to become bread. Is that what he's going to do? Could he trust in that moment after 40 days? Could he trust his Father to provide in the wilderness? To provide what he needs to live? Or did he need to provide for himself as the Son of God? And Jesus' reply comes to us in Matthew 4, 4. And he says these key words, it is written. Before he quotes Deuteronomy, you can see it is written. He's, he's living on bread that comes from above. He's, he's living on the words that come from the mouth of God. It is written. It's not only an affirmation that Jesus only thinks that the scriptures that are written are actually scriptures, that they're inspired, that they're inerrant, that they are scriptures that are authoritative. He, he meditates on them. He knows them. And he, and he goes to his favorite book, Deuteronomy, which I think is growing in everyone else's affection here today and is quickly becoming our favorite book, is it not? He goes to his favorite book and he says, it is written because he is not living on bread alone. Where does he turn to? He turns to what he's living on, God's word. And he says, it is written, the man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. The Son of God depended upon his Father's word. He is saying in this moment that there is no life apart not from bread, but no life apart from my Father's word. It's that lesson that God wanted to teach, not just Israel. He wanted to teach man. And so here comes the true man, the truest man that ever lived. And what is he doing? He's leading the way, saying it is written. He's living not on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The reality for everybody is that we're all dependent on something or someone. We're living on something. We're living on someone. What is it? Who is it? What do we need to live? God taught with manna that man does not live by bread alone. And God's people are to be people who depend upon God's word. That the relationship between God's people and God's word should look like, it should resemble the relationship between Israel and the manna. And every day they would depend upon it. Every day they had this reality, there's no life apart from me getting out of my tent and going out and collecting what God had provided out there. And in their hunger and their need, they'd go out daily to collect this manna, and God daily, faithfully provided for them. There was this daily reliance and daily provision. And God is saying the relationship between my people and my word should look like that, should resemble it. So does our dependence on God's word look anything like that experience? My concern is that many haven't learned the, the lesson of, of manna and that life goes on apart from God's word as if nothing is wrong, as if we can live on bread alone. My concern is that we might be convinced that there's something worse, that there's not something worse than physical starvation. And we might be misled into thinking that there's something more important, more essential for us to live. And instead, daily, our lives, instead of living on the words that come from the mouth of God, daily our lives are pronouncing that we have more confidence in food than we do in God. My guess is that you probably don't skip many meals. Daily, you want to make sure that I get 
the sustenance from food that I need or want. And yet I wonder, in that proclamation, are we making the same proclamation about God's word? Or do we think again, I can live on bread alone? I love John Piper says this. He says, if you must be cho- choose between Bible and breakfast, choose Bible and grab an energy bar. Then plan better. <laughs> love it. Why does he say that? Because man does not live by bread alone. So am I saying, skip a meal? I, I agree. If you have to, yes. Because there's something more important than food. And I believe there's something more There's something worse than starvation. Life apart from God is worse than that. Man doesn't live by bread alone. We're to be totally dependent upon God and his word. We can be daily recipients of this miracle of God's giving life and provision to sustain us, not just physically, but spiritually through his word. This is the means God uses for his people so that they can continue in this life that he's given them. And not only was manna teaching in the wilderness, not only was it this wilderness classroom that was teaching this lesson, he was also giving provisions in other ways. So he was like, everywhere he's showing them in the wilderness, I'm faithful to provide, you're to rely upon me, learn this lesson well. Verse 4 and 5, he shows them kind of ordinary provision. Your clothing didn't wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. There's the provision of manna, there's the provision of clothing, and apparently footwear was good too. All part of God's discipline, all part of his training regimen, so that they would be trained and taught to rely upon him, that he can be faithful for everything that's in front of him. The wilderness classroom taught a lesson of dependence and trust. Notice that he's using everything here. Everything. The wilderness, he's using hunger and scarcity to provide with sustaining manna. He's showing that he's faithful and reliable, even in extraordinary ways to take care of them, to meet their needs. He's using the the rough desert terrain and the enduring uh, clothing and outerwear that they have to showcase that he's good and, again, trustworthy, to be relied upon. He can take care of their every need. And the wilderness, again, is this ideal place to learn. And God showcased in that place his trustworthiness. He showcased his dependability, that this is one you can rely on, that this is one you can live your life on. If you trust in him, you can live your life on this. I just wonder, uh, we're not in a physical wilderness, but are we kind of, do you feel as if you're in a wilderness? We need to look at this and at least see that, that God uses those places. He can use it to to test us, to humble us, to discipline us, to teach us. And in lots of ways, if you're in the wilderness, you need to know that that might be the ideal classroom that you need for God to teach. Because there's nothing there. Everything being stripped away can be a good thing because it exposes what's there. And what God wants is to remove what's there that's not of him. And instead put himself there. And so if you're in the wilderness or feeling like you're in the wilderness, I I say look to him in that place. Ask him what he wants to teach you. Learn to trust him. Go to him for provision. Eat of his word there. I love Psalm 119. If you turn to Psalm 119, you might be able to follow along with this. But think about Psalm 119 in the midst of the wilderness. It has all sorts of wilderness type things going on in Psalm 119. This, This passage that talks about how much delight and goodness there is in the law of the Lord. So let's say if you're in the wilderness and your soul clings to the dust... Ask for life in his word. That's verse 25. 
If you're melting for sorrow, ask for strength, verse 28. If you're lacking the right motive to live and obey, ask him to enlarge your heart, verse 32. If you're struggling with sin, ask him what we prayed earlier, to turn your eyes from worthless things and instead put it on the right things, verse 37. If you're wondering and you don't know where to go or how to get there, ask his word to be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. If you're fearful and you want to hide and you need a hiding place and a shield, ask him to be that, Psalm 119, verse 1. 14. God teaches all these things and more. His word is what we're living upon even in the wilderness. It's enough to sustain. He is teaching all over the place that man doesn't live by bread alone. Because this is true, the wilderness is now not just a place that's just barren. It's a place of provision. It's a place that for all of us can be a place full of life because God is giving what we need, even in that barren place. How does he do it? God sustains his people with his word, and we can depend upon it. And so we need to look around and think, like, not only individually, but as a church, this is what we got to go to. This is what we need to feast upon. So every week, we're going to turn to it, and we're going to open it up, and this is going to be the feast laid in front of us. It's going to be God's word, because we know We we can live without entertainment. We can live without other things occupying our time. We can't live apart from the word. Even as a church, like we're, we're going to live or die by this. And we would rather you live. And God would rather you live. And so we open it up and we try to put before us just this feast of, of God's word that we might be sustained, that we might know that we don't live by bread alone and that we can depend upon him. This is the wilderness lesson. And that's the lesson that not only did they need it in the promise or in the wilderness, but they needed it in the promised land. It was the lesson that was to be learned, and then it was the lesson to be lived and remembered in the promised land. Here's what that looks like. Verse 6, so you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Verse 6 gives us a way to depend upon God's word. Here is it. Here it is. Do, do it and keep it. Now, these are manna-like commands in the book of Deuteronomy. Right, we've seen do keep, obey repeatedly. Almost like we've seen daily manna fall from heaven. He is telling them over and over again, do my word, keep my word, keep my commandments, keep my rules and my statutes. In other words, he puts in front of them, as he put manna in front of them, repeatedly this command, do these things, keep my word. And so there's this ongoing manna-like dependence in the promised land. It's going to be shown in the people of God by obeying his word. By living on that word, by carrying it out, by keeping it and living, he says in verse 6, in the fear of him. That, that is, they, they know God's commands. They know his ways. Think about that mercy that we've seen, that he, this one true living God, hasn't kept hidden from them how he wants them to live, and what kind of people he wants them to be, and what kind of God he is. He's shown them. He's been so merciful. He speaks. His speaking is mercy, and he reveals such things that, that there would be mercy, that they might know what he requires of them. They might know how to live and what to do. And here's the, because he has given that, because he has spoken, they can know him and they can fear him. They can live their lives leaning toward him and not away from him, because not only do they know his word, but they know that he's good. He wants good things for them. And so the lesson of manna had to be learned in the wilderness, but lived in the promised land, because the manna wasn't going to last forever. It was a 40-year phenomenon. Here's what God's going to do to provide in the promised land. Verse 7, the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, 
a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land in whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. The, the place that God is bringing them into is this abundant place. Everywhere there's rich provision. Everywhere there's good gifts from above. Right? He's given them this great place. It's, it's, it's Edenic, right, in its description. There's flowing water. There's, there's good stuff to be had all over the place. Like God has rigged the land so that even in the ground there's stuff that would be for their good. Think about the, the wisdom and the magnitude of God that he can not only do that, but he puts it there and he says, this is the land I'm giving you. Like he, he's rigged this thing to be a, a wonderful, good place, almost Edenic for them. Such a contrast with where they came from in the wilderness. The wilderness was barren, scarce, kind of scary, harsh. Here they come to the promised land. This place is full. It's got all that they need. It's even got stuff in the ground. Like, God is doing so much here. They're not less dependent there. It, though it's, the provision is, is given in a different way, they're still dependent. But the promised land is, is not scarce. The land is not barren. And so they have every reason in this land to bless the Lord who gave it abundantly and gave abundantly for them in the promised land. But with this abundance comes a warning. Verse 11, take care unless you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. And after, after all of God's provision in the wilderness, 40 years, God daily providing bread from heaven. After 40 years of even providing water for them in a wilderness place, of providing all that they need so they can survive in a barren place, a scarce place, and then leading them into the promised land where it's full. And, and in front of them in the promised land, we remember is, is a bunch of people that he's going to clear out in front of them and give them that place. After all of that provision, you would think that there'd be no way that any people would ever need to be warned about forgetting the one that had done all that. But the warning is really clear. And so apparently, after all of that history, uh, knowing not only who they are, but where they've come from, there, there's still the possibility of forgetting. That one of the dangers in the promised land is, is forgetting. And notice that it's not just forgetting events. It's not just forgetting actions. It's forgetting a person. They might forget the Lord. The Lord himself. Forgetting then is not just absent-mindedness. Not just memory loss. This is a moral category. A sin category. And, and part of forgetting the Lord is what's going on in verse 11. By how? By not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes would I command you. They're not going to walk in obedience. That's the warning that when you get there, be careful that you don't walk in sin. In Deuteronomy, God has been really, really clear that, that, that not walking in commandments is the path of destruction. And God says, that's in front of you. Don't go that way. And what's surprising about this path are the, the kind of the factors that contribute to it. They're pretty unsuspecting. Look in verse 12. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. Oh, well, here's here are the factors that contribute to their forgetting. 
a satisfying diet, comfortable homes, flourishing livestock and offspring, growing wealth. These are pretty unsuspecting, right? These are all good things, good gifts from God. You wouldn't think that they would contribute to something so heinous as forgetting the Lord Himself. These are rich provisions from the Lord who had led them to this place, who had given them the promised land graciously. And he says, be careful there. The the warning still goes out. It is given that those good gifts can quickly lead to forgetting the Lord who gave them. If they do not and have not learned the lesson of the wilderness of dependence upon the Lord and on His word, if they don't heed this warning to when you get there and you're richly provided for and you forget the Lord, then that easily is going to be the path that they're on. That the promised land's provision and God's provision in the promised land should lead to verse 10, to them saying, we need to bless the Lord for all that he has given to us. But the blessing that they should be giving in verse 10 can so quickly turn into verse 17. Verse 17, where their hearts say, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. That's a place where they're saying, I don't have a need for God. I've done it. Why look to Him? I can live on bread alone, and the bread that I'm living on alone is bread that I did. I provided. And so their heart, verse 14, is lifted up. That's pride. They're not knowing that the Lord is God, and they are not. They're acting as if they have done it. But God has told them already what their hearts are to do. They're not to lift their hearts up, they're to let them be full of love, right? Here's what the Lord requires of you, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Not that your heart be lifted up in pride, but that your heart be full of love for God. Prosperity in the promised land has this potential to lead to forgetting of the Lord, to walking away from His word and His commands, and so He says in advance, be warned take care, be careful. These good gifts that he's providing, this provision that he gives, this comfort, it sings a siren tune. can easily lull to sleep. And the goal for Israel in the promised land isn't just, notice, their health and their wealth. He warns of that, right? He says, be careful because you might get these things. You might be in good health and have good wealth when you're there and be careful there. Life with God in the promised land with those provisions is the goal. Life with God as his people in relationship with him is the goal. Not life in the promised land with health and wealth. God is faithful to provide, and he provides in their adversity and scarcity in the wilderness. And notice that he's providing here for their prosperity in the promised land. And here's how he provides for them, with his word, and his word comes as warning. And that's the the message we need for prosperity, isn't it? Warning, there's danger ahead. The promised land is a place that is described very in Edenic, garden-like fashion where you should be able to bless the Lord. But this can be kind of what John Bunyan imagines in his Pilgrim's Progress as enchanted ground. Where it can quickly become a place that it's easy to relax, take it easy, maybe take a nap, be a little forgetful. And all of a sudden, they've forgotten the Lord and walked away from His commands. Now, one pastor said this, that we live on enchanted ground. 
and are surrounded with snares. It is a shame it should be so, but so it is, that a long course of prosperity always makes us drowsy. Beware of any teaching that tells you constantly that it's always best to move from the wilderness to the promised land, that it's always best to move from scarcity and lack to this place of abundance and fullness and health and wealth. Because here's what we know, that adversity may slay thousands, but prosperity would slay ten thousands, can make us drowsy. And so the, the teaching of prosperity here of the promised land comes with warning because God is good and he wants them to have life in the promised land, not to be drowsy and fall asleep and forget his word and walk away from it thinking that they can live on bread alone or verse 17, that their power and their hand has gotten in these things. That pastor would go on to say, alas, the deceitfulness of our hearts in a time of prosperity exposes us to the greatest of evils, to wander from the fountain of living waters and to sit down by broken cisterns. Isn't that what Moses is warning them of? Watch out. Your heart's going to be exposed. Don't wander away. Go to these broken cisterns. God knows how quick sinful hearts can move from, from spiritual, just spiritual laxity, seems like no big deal, kind of an inconsequential moment. It's just enchanted ground. I can take a little rest. I can relax a little bit. He knows how quickly we can move from spiritual laxity to spiritual pride and say, my hands have done this. I've brought me this far. What's clear is that no person in Israel should be able to say that with any logic still functioning in their minds and hearts. They were slaves in Egypt. God had brought them out. They offered nothing. They would have died and wilted in the land, but God provided. And they would have been destroyed before these armies and nations that stood in front of them, but God cleared the land. And they would have had nothing in the land had God not provided and even buried into the ground things to provide for them and to give them what they needed. And we shouldn't look at them and be like, we're that different. We all need to ask the, the 1 Corinthians 4 question. Paul comes to the Corinthians and he says, what, what do you have that you didn't receive? 1 Corinthians 4, 17. And if you didn't have anything and you just received everything, why do you boast as if you didn't? The hearts can be fooled by the delusion of verse 17 that my power and my might has gotten me this. And we can do it not just with wealth, but with anything. But what do we have that we haven't received? And if we received it, then why do we boast as if we haven't? Why do we lift up our hearts in pride? And here's what Moses does with his words. He breaks up the enchanted ground. Enchanted ground that can move us so quickly to forgetting the Lord. And he breaks up that enchanting, enchanted ground by reminding. Listen to verse 14. This is the Lord your God who did what? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery... Who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions. Man, that sounds like a... Man, God led them there. It sounds like a terrible place, but he led them through this place. He led them through thirsty ground where there was no water and brought water out of the flinty rock. He fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers didn't know. No, I mean, no other generation. No, 40 years he provided. I, no one else knows this in the way they know it. That he might humble you. 
and test you to do good, do you good in the end. Beware, then, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. The antidote to this enchanted ground, to forgetting the Lord is to remember. And again, forgetting and remembering, those are moral categories here. Those are sin categories here. They're a matter of the heart. And what Moses points to when he says to remember is he points to what the Lord has done and he points to the Lord's purpose in his doing of those things. That is that the Lord redeemed them. He brought them out of Egypt. It was his work, his doing. He provided for them. He protected them. Fiery serpents and scorpions. He protected them from those. He provided for them. He protected them. And he brings, this in, brings them into the promised land not just to make them wealthy and healthy. He had a higher goal, a better goal. Because there are higher and better goals than just being healthy and wealthy, we need to add. He he had a much higher and better goal to humble them. That they might know that he's God and they're not. And to do them good. So what's their good? Verse 1 of chapter 8 told us. This is the, the whole commandment that I command you today. You shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. It's verse 6. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. It's obedience. All through Deuteronomy, this obedience, doing and keeping, it leads to blessing and, and the good things, the good life that God had wanted for them if they would just rely not on themselves but on the words that come from God's mouth. They are to remember the Lord who redeemed them, who protected them, who provided for them. They are not to forget Him because forgetting Him leads to disaster, the disaster that's described in verse 19 and 20. If you forget the Lord and you go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. And like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish. Because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Notice God gives this in advance because he wants to warn them. His very heart is being disclosed in this warning that he would say, don't go this way and perish. That's what's going to happen. You'll perish. Don't do it. He warns them. In verse 1, they're doing and keeping and they're living and multiplying. It's the opposite of verse 19 and 20. Because in verse 20, here's what they are doing. They would not obey the voice of the Lord. That is that the lesson of the wilderness, that man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God, that lesson wouldn't learn in verse 19 and 20. It needed to be lived out in the promised land, in obedience to God and who He is. That the wealth in the promised land, apart from God, is a path of destruction. So they need to continue to depend upon God. They must not forget to remember the Lord. So here's what they're to do. Look back. Look back at the events. Look back at the Lord of those events. And remember Him. The one who brought you out of Egypt, provided for you, protected you. Now today, as we look back at Israel, as they prepare for the promised land, hopefully we can look back with a a sense of urgency, learning the lesson that we know as we look back that they didn't learn. When Israel got to the promised land, it didn't take long for them to forget. 
and to not live out the lesson that God had meant to teach them and push down into them in the wilderness. The lesson of dependence. And as we look back, that reality shouldn't surprise us that they failed because that's a picture of our own sinful hearts. That's what we would have done. How natural it is for us to say, verse 17, that my power and my might and my hand have gotten me this. So we need to look back too. But when we look back, when we see Israel... We also need to look back and see the true Israel, Jesus Christ, the God-man, who says, verse 3, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. We need to look back and see that too, because in our failure, we have one who succeeded. He, He was the one who perfectly carried out the commands of God and lived on God's word where Israel had failed. And so that when we look back, because we have hearts like theirs, we get to look back at one who would would save us. Because here's this one who came and didn't live by bread alone, but every word that came from the mouth of God. He faced this question, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And he says it is written. He faced a similar question when he was dying on the cross. If you're the son of God, why don't you come down? Again, maybe they're questioning his power. Maybe they're questioning whether he can actually do it or not. But the actual question, the the heart of the question is, am I going to trust the Father here or not? Can the Father provide here or not? And thankfully, we get to look back and know that Jesus stood on the cross facing the onslaught of questions and stayed there so that we can now live not by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. He did that, succeeding where we failed, where Israel failed, and even all the way to the point of death on the cross, so that we might be people who could enjoy this good provision from the Lord that he has given with him in a place, eternal place, forever. Let's look back and remember the Lord, the one who said, man should not live on bread alone. Would you bow in prayer with me? Jesus, what do we have? It's not a gift from you. We don't think that way. We look around and we see blessings all around us and we don't even think of them as blessings. We just think of them as things that we've earned, that are normal, that we've worked hard for, that we deserve. Even just getting in a car and rolling down the street and going into a house and having warmth and shelter from the snow, to have a refrigerator full of food. It's so easy to forget you and to forget that even the ability to breathe and keep a heart beating and walk around and think and go to work and have skills and the ability to have training or school or whatever it 
is that we need to do what we do. Everything that we have comes from you, God. And we're sorry that we forget. And we forget you in so many ways. And so, Lord, I, I'm afraid of what we might need. Some of us, we, we may need hard times to come into our lives from you that are a gift, that are attesting to get our eyes focused on you and to learn to depend on your word. And some of us in that place right now, some of us may be very well aware of our inability to take care of ourselves and, and desperately dependent on you and clinging to your every word, Lord. And I pray if that's where we are, that, that they would hang on tightly and not let go of you, and that they would learn that you are a God who sustains and gives us everything that we need, and that you would feed their souls, Lord. And for those of us who are distracted and who never forget about breakfast, but always forget about the Bible, Lord, I pray that we would wake up from our slumber. We've been lulled to sleep by comfort and prosperity and other goals that we have for our lives that are not your goals, that are not your glory, and our love for you and our humility before you and our love for our fellow human beings. God, will you shake us and rattle us and let us hear you and let us grow to depend on you, to need you every day, just like we need food and water, that we would need your word because we actually do need you. That is what we need from you, but we're blind to it and we don't see it. Jesus, we don't want to forget what you have done for us. Open up our eyes to glorious things in your word. And the most glorious thing, Lord, is you. You're what we have most to be thankful for. That even though we are forgetful and even though we immediately turn from you and uh, fall asleep and think that we've done what you have done you still love us and pursue us, and you will not stop your process of sanctifying us and making us holy and killing off the sin that is in us until you come back again to restore us fully, Jesus. Thank you for dying for sinners. Thank you for being raised from the dead so that we have a hope that far outlasts the pleasures of this world, Lord. Let us find our pleasure in you. We worship you today, Jesus.